Good morning. It's great to see y'all here today. It's good to be in God's house. It's good to worship together. Y'all may notice I'm a little more dressed up than usual. That's because once a quarter we do the Lord's Supper in, uh, at, in our worship services at the end of each worship service. And the deacons like to wear suit and tie on those days. I can't make them make me look bad, right? So I, I've got I've to compete. Um, so that means we are going to observe something that Jesus commanded us to observe 2,000 years ago. There's actually only two things Jesus said about how to do church. Did you know that? I mean, the rest is pretty much negotiable as long as you're worshiping the right person, and that's Jesus, and using the right book, and that's Scripture. But, but in terms of how to do church, he only said two things. He said, baptize in my name, and do the Lord's Supper in remembrance of me. And so when we do this in a little while, what you need to understand if you're new here is you don't have to be a member of our church family to participate in this with us. That's not our decision, whether you're worthy or not, to take the Lord's Supper. But God's Word says in 2 Corinthians, make sure your heart is right. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It means make sure there's nothing in your heart that is held back from God. Uh, for instance, if there's somebody that you know is mad at you for some reason, and you haven't done all you can to make things right with them, or you need to apologize to someone, or you need to forgive someone, don't take the Lord's Supper with a heart that's not right. We've been talking about idolatry over the past several weeks, and an idol is anything that you put in a place in your life that only God deserves. Anything that you look to for your security, identity, purpose, peace, and joy. And if you are holding on to an idol and saying, yeah, Lord, I want you, but I have to have this too, then you need to get that right before you take the Lord's Supper. And if I were you, I would rather let the tray go by me and not take the Lord's Supper knowing that my heart is not right. Or what's even better is to take this time, these next 20 minutes, and just get your heart right with God and say, Lord, I'm going to give you everything. Because here's the thing, as we've talked about idolatry, one of the things we've seen is that when we put things where only God belongs, it steals our joy, it steals our peace and our purpose, it steals that abundant life that God wants us to have. But here's something we haven't really talked about as much. Not only does it hurt us, it hurts the people who know us in the sense that we are their connection to God, we are their witnesses, and we become bad witnesses when we put something else in God's place. So, for instance, we're talking today about the idol of power. And there's a great many Christians, I would say to you today, who outwardly might be very moral. They might say a lot of the right things, do a lot of the right things, avoid a lot of the big vices. And yet, because of their addiction to power, because of their insistence on always being in control, they're driving people away. People look at them and say, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want anything, I don't want anything to do with it. And that it happens often in our churches these days, I'm afraid. Power is what scholars will call a deep idol. And let me explain what I mean by that. So idolatry of any kind can be identified pretty easily for the most part. Simple idols can be easily identified. For instance, my family would say that my smartphone is an idol, wouldn't they? Yes. Okay, so why would they say that? They would say that because I'm always checking it because I, I carry it in my hand like Linus carries his security blanket, right? Old reference for people that remember peanuts. Um, and, and I get, you know, if, it, if the charge gets below 50%, I get a little, little nervous. Right now it's, okay, it's at 40%, so a little anxiety going on here. So that's pretty simple, right? I, it's something that means more to me than it should. But power is different. Power is a deep idol in the sense that it manifests itself differently in my life than it does in yours. It, it produces all kinds of smaller 
more simple idolatries from that one deep idolatry. Power is one. Comfort is one that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Next week, we're going to talk about the idol of approval, and that also is a deep idol. Uh, a deep idol. But let's talk about some examples of how power idolatry is seen in our lives. One, let's say, and by the way, these first two examples are completely hypothetical. I'm not talking about any of you or any specific person, okay? So let's imagine there's a man who needs to be right, who has strong opinions on every subject, who whenever he hears someone disagree with him on anything, he feels like he has to speak up. And so he constantly gets into these little debates and these loud arguments, and he's always hurting people's feelings, and he always has to have the last word. And that's power idolatry at work. This is someone who has to win, who has to feel like they control the language, they control the debate, they control the way people think. And that's pretty easy to spot. But on the other hand, imagine someone who's completely different. Let's say there's a woman who is very meek and very mild-mannered, very soft-spoken, would never raise her voice, would never say anything rude, and yet in her family, she keeps everything under a tight-fisted control. She never raises her voice in her family. She never says anything cruel. And yet through emotional manipulation, through guilt, through, um, through sort of withholding affection or, or maybe some simple little cutting remarks, she makes sure that her husband and her children always do, always say exactly what she wants. And she's driving them crazy. The kids can't wait to grow up and get out of the house. The, the husband feels like he's just totally had his uh, life taken away from him. And, yet, and she knows this, and yet she can't stop. She feels like she must control their lives. And that, again, is power idolatry. And now let me give you a third example. And this is, this is a real thing that happened. This is a real person. I'm going to call her Michelle. It's not a real name, but this was in a, a previous church several years ago. And this is the day after a presidential election, an election in which the guy I voted for did not win. An election in which the guy Michelle voted for did not win either. And I suspect a lot of you as well. And so I saw her at church, there was an event going on, and, and I saw her, and she looked really depressed, and I thought maybe she'd had a death in the family. I said, is everything okay? And she said, well, no, it's this election, I just don't understand. And she literally said, I don't know how God could do this to us. And I said, well, Michelle, I mean, I'm not happy about the way it turned out either, but you realize God didn't do this. I mean, the people chose their leader. That's the way our system works. I mean, the good news and bad news of our system is we pretty much get the leaders we deserve. And she would not accept that. She said, no, but we're on the side of righteousness. We're on the side of truth. God should back us up. I don't understand why he didn't. And it, and it occurred to me, this is a, a good person, a, a, an educated person, a, a right-thinking person in many ways, and yet... This idea that someone else could be in charge of our nation, someone she doesn't agree with, just terrified her. It was not that someone who she disagreed with was in charge, it was that someone who was evil was in charge. And that, I believe, is also power idolatry. See, today people will tell you that uh, the world of politics is much more divided than ever, that we're more divided as a people than we've been since any time since the Civil War. And, and there's evidence to agree with that. For instance, I, I read a, a Gallup poll. Uh, did you know back in the 50s, the Gallup people uh, surveyed folks all across America of all races, and they asked them, uh, how would you feel if your son or daughter married someone of a different race? And this is the 1950s. People of virtually all races said, well, I wouldn't accept that. that that's not right. 
On the other hand, they asked him, well, how about if they married someone of a different political party? And they said, well, I could accept that. That's okay. I could deal with that. They asked the same question in 2018. Guess what? It had flip-flopped. So now most Americans would say interracial marriage is okay. And I agree. I tell my kids all the time, I don't care what your husband or wife looks like as long as they love the Lord and they love you. But on the other hand, most Americans said, if my son or daughter married someone who votes differently than me, then we've got a problem. Then we've got issues. I I don't think I could ever accept that person. How did that happen? And why do we as Christians take it so seriously? Do you know that when people do research, and these research studies are coming out, it seems like a new one every month, about what causes young adults, people who've grown up in the church and they're, they're now in their 20s and 30s, and now they still believe in Jesus, they still, they still have the same doctrinal beliefs, the same practices, and yet they don't really have any connection to the church anymore. And they ask them, why, why is that? And always in the top two or three reasons is, well, church has just become too political. I go, I want to hear a message about God's Word, but instead I hear something about a political issue. I go to my life group and I I want to hear the Bible, but instead everybody's talking about immigration or they're talking about Iran or they're talking about Afghanistan. And I, I just want to talk about Scripture. And I've had friends that have experienced that. And it's driven them away from church as well. See, and by the way, let me just give my little disclaimer that I always do when I talk about something that I know is going to be controversial. My job here is to express and apply the Word of God, not to give my opinions. So if at any time you feel like I've overstepped my bounds, if you think that I've misused the Word of God or applied it in a way that is not scriptural, we're part of a family. I want you to come talk to me. If you don't feel comfortable talking to me in person, send me an email. You can call me on the phone. But I do not want us to be divided because of an interpretation of God's Word. I want us to talk it out and think it through, okay? So, back to what we're talking about. If a lot of us were honest, if a lot of us were honest, we'd admit, I love Jesus, I trust Him to save my soul, I believe He forgives my sins, I will never get over how good he's been to me, but I'm not real sure about trusting him with our country, right? I feel like, I feel like there's some other things that are needed. Honestly, honestly, I'm being discipled more by cable news than I am by the scriptures. Yeah, I trust Jesus to save my soul. I just, I think my own ideology is necessary for our country. That's what's important. And by the way, political power is not a bad thing. I don't mean to say that we as Christians should disengage from these big issues of our day. There's too much at stake. We have to be involved. That's part of being responsible citizens and disciples of Jesus. Political power is a good thing when it's in the hands of a righteous person. It can be used to to set slaves free, to stand up to international bullies, to protect the vulnerable, including the unborn, to balance the scales so poor people can get back on their feet, to bring about racial equality and racial reconciliation, to remove boundaries to religious freedom so that the gospel can be preached unhindered. All those things can happen, but it matters what you do to gain power, and it matters what you do to maintain it. And I'm afraid that oftentimes we have been so addicted to the idea of controlling things that we sell our souls on the altar of political power, that we forfeit our right and ability to win our neighbors because we've decided they're the enemy. 
So what do we do? I, I, I want to compare us and the way we behave to Jesus. And, and where I'm starting is, is in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, by the way, two things Jesus did before he ever started his earthly ministry at around the age of 30. First, he went to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. Second, he went out into the wilderness, out into the desert to fast for 40 days and nights, prepare himself for the long road ahead, the road that would end at the cross. And Satan was waiting for him there. Satan was waiting. And the Bible tells us that tells us three specific temptations the devil threw at Jesus over those 40 days. I personally believe this isn't an exhaustive list. I think the devil hit Jesus with everything in his playbook, trying with everything he had to get Jesus to sin just once. But the one we're going to read, Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, I believe this is the hardest one that Jesus faced. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So what was the devil really offering? Because I don't personally believe that Satan has the authority to say, oh yeah, I'll give you the world. So what was he actually saying? Because Jesus, notice, doesn't contradict him. I think the devil was saying this. Look, you know, Jesus, that I've got the ear of all these kings and queens and generals and whole people groups, and I'm influencing them away from you, influencing them away from peace, away from love, away from goodness and righteousness. But if you'll bow down to me, I'll change my stripes. I'll become your hype man. I'll become your PR guy. I will influence them toward you. I will whisper in their ear that they should follow you and obey you, and you can rule. All you got to do is bow to me. I want to ask you something real quick. Jesus knew his destiny, right? Jesus knew where he was headed. The devil knew it too, because he reads the Bible just like you and I do, and he's a better theologian than any of us. Jesus knew where his destiny lay. It was headed for a cross. How tempting do you think it was for Jesus to say, all I've got to do is just do this symbolic thing and I'll get to rule the whole world. Not for the sake of my own power, but think of all the good Jesus could have done. How different would our world be today if 2,000 years ago Jesus became king and reigned until today? Do you think there'd be fewer wars? Do you think there'd be less injustice? Do you think poverty would be wiped out? Do you think people would treat each other well? Do you think families would be healthier? Do you think people would be happier? Yes, 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 yes. Wouldn't you love to live in a world where Jesus is king of everything? I know I would. I'm looking forward to when it happens someday. But Jesus knew that what we needed more than a, than a righteous king was a savior. Jesus knew that if he took the crown without the cross, he could do a lot of good things, but he couldn't save anybody. Jesus knew that what we needed was atonement for our sins. And there's no atonement without sacrifice. There's no atonement without the cross. And so Jesus rejected the easy path to power with all the good he could have done to choose the path of love the path of pain, the hard way that leads to the cross. 
In Matthew in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, classic passage, Paul writes about Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, Jesus had all power, but he gave it up. He didn't hold on to it. He didn't cling to it. He didn't fight people who tried to steal it from him. He gave it up. It says he emptied himself. Doesn't mean he ceased to be any less God. He was still God. He just emptied himself of his power, his prerogatives, his authority, his abilities to, uh, to command people to follow him. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Remember that last phrase. Now contrast Jesus with another person from the Bible, a guy named Saul, King Saul from the Old Testament, actually the book of 1 Samuel. We just read about him in our daily Bible reading just a few weeks ago. Saul was Israel's first king. He was, he was really impressive. He was a head taller than anybody else. This is a reminder. You don't choose your rulers by their height, okay? Saul got off to a great start as king of Israel. He was humble. When the elders of Israel came to anoint him as king, they couldn't find him. He was hiding among the baggage because he was too humble to stand before the people. He was gracious. After his first great military victory, all of his supporters came to him and said, okay, let's round up everybody who spoke against you and kill them now. And he said, no, today's not a day for vengeance. It's a day for forgiveness. Let's bring the family of Israel together. And yet over time, this man who started out so well, the power of the throne corrupted him. And he got to where all he cared about was holding on to what he had. And along comes this rival named David. David didn't have any ill will towards Saul. David refused on two separate occasions to kill Saul when he had the opportunity. But all Saul could see was people like him more than they like me. And what if I lose what I have and he gains it? And so a guy who could have done all the good in the world with the power he'd been given, wasted it and spent the, the rest of his life trying to kill David instead of leading his people. So which are we more like? Are we more like Jesus or Saul? See, late in Jesus' life, right near the end in Matthew chapter 16, years after that event in the desert, he's talking to his disciples and he's telling them for the very first time, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be forsaken by our people. I am going to be condemned by the Sanhedrin and I'm going to be crucified by the Romans. And Peter spoke for all the rest of the disciples when he said, no, Lord, never. We will never let that happen. And remember what Jesus said to him? Get behind me, Satan. And we say that in a joking way now when we see a hot fudge Sunday or something. Get behind me, Satan. No, Jesus in saying that was saying the, the most, the meanest, awfulest thing he could say to any human being. He was calling his best friend the worst name there was to give. He was referring to him as the, the source of all evil, the, the most evil being on earth. Why? Because he recognized in Peter's words that same old temptation. Come on, Lord. You don't need the cross. Just grab the crown. Come on, Lord. Just, just go to Jerusalem right now and, and, and execute Herod and, and send Pilate packing and, and claim the throne of our people and put all of our enemies in their place. Claim that crown. Think of all the good you can do. Jesus said, no, you don't have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of man. You want power. You don't want 
salvation. But that's what you need. You need a Savior. See, the problem with the idol of power, Peter found out, Saul found out, is that right when you think you're standing up for righteousness, right when you think you are standing up for truth, you're actually the best tool the devil has in his toolbox. You're driving people away. We tell ourselves, for instance, that, that uh, in that first example I gave of the man who has to be right all the time, he tells himself, oh, I'm just bold. I mean, I'm sorry, God made me bold. I'm, I'm, I'm like the prophets of old. I just say the truth. No, you're a jerk. And we know what we're talking about, don't we? There's a difference between being bold for the Lord and always wanting to be right. See, true boldness has humility mixed in. True boldness loves the person you're talking to. For that woman who has to maintain control, maintain control of her family, she says, well, it's for their good. I love them. And I'm sure she does. But you know what she loves more? She loves the vision of her family that exists in her head, not the family that actually exists. That idea, I can't let go of, of trying to steer them into the place that I want them to be. That's killing her and killing them. And when it comes to political engagement, it's even more complicated. Because as I said, we can't just wash our hands of it and say, well, forget this. I'm just going to read the Bible and pray. We have to be involved. Lives are at stake. Truth is at stake. But how do we do this? Let me just say, here are some ways you know if you're hanging on to the idol of power. One is, if you look at the people who vote differently than you and you think, well, they're not just wrong, they're evil. If they get control of our country, then everything is lost and I might as well move to Canada. If we feel anger whenever we hear them expressing their point of view, if we fear what happens if they win, that's the spirit of King Saul. A Christian should never fear. Do you know that at moments when the when the movement of God was in a minority, those were the best moments for the church. I'm not saying we should willingly give up. I'm saying that when it looks like we're down, those are our best moments. Don't be afraid. God knows what He's doing. God is still God. Christ is still on His throne. If we use insults against people because we say, well, that's the way they talk to us. If we pass along every news article that makes them look bad without even checking to see if it's true, if we can't speak respectfully to people who disagree with us, if we can't say what they believe in a way that is actually legitimate, respectful, then we're acting no different than people who are unredeemed. If we're willing to defend our guy against accusations and excuse character flaws that we would roast the other side for, then the idol of power is stealing our integrity and they are right to call us hypocrites. All we're thinking about is winning, not the gospel. And if we spend more time reading articles and watching TV shows that reinforce our beliefs than we do praying and working for the salvation of people who aren't like us, then power has become our true God. So what do we do? What's the answer? In the verse before Philippians 2, 6-8, that would be verse 5. Paul, in those verses, talks about Christ willingly laying aside power, willingly giving up of Himself to rescue us. Verse 5 says, have this same mind among yourselves. You know, I don't know about you, but I can't just make my mind change. 
I can't make my attitude change. I need help with it. So I think what Paul's saying is, come to the Lord and say, Lord, change my heart. I'm not like this. I'm not like you, but I want to be. In Matthew 10, 16, Jesus is sending his disciples out to preach for the first time without his supervision. And he says, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Notice he doesn't say, hey, when you get out there, there's going to be people who disagree with you. So you make sure and put them in their place. He doesn't say, you've got all this miracle working power. Why don't you zap them? Why don't you call down fire from heaven? Make an example of a few and then they'll fall in line. No, he says, be shrewd as snakes. In other words, don't be easily taken in, but innocent as doves. They should not be able to accuse you of anything. They should be frustrated by your integrity and the love with which you address them. Be humble, be gentle, be gracious, even in a world full of people who fight dirty. So what we must do, friends, what we must do is be honest about the fear that is in our heart, about the the way we look at people who are different. And we need to say, we need to pray along with the psalmist in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me. Lord, I'm so caught up in all these debates. And Lord, they do matter. They are important. But... Help me to trust you, even when things don't go my way. And when things do go my way, help me to be gracious to those who are different. And over all else, let me, help me to recognize that the ultimate goal is not the Supreme Court or the White House or Capitol Hill. The ultimate goal is the salvation of human beings. That's why you died. That's why you've commissioned us. Because Paul said at the end of that in the end of that passage, he died even death on the cross. Why that word even? See, Paul knew what a crucifixion was. Paul had actually seen men crucified. So had the Philippians he was writing to. We haven't. Paul knew the pain. The pain. You know, we get the word excruciating from the word crucifixion. He knew the humiliation. He knew the shame. He knew what Jesus went through. And what Paul is saying is, if Jesus had come, and he had condescended to become a human being like us. And he had laid aside his power. And he'd put up for 30 years with frustrating human beings. And for three years with his dim-witted disciples. And he had endured the insults. And he had endured the poverty. And endured all the mess. And then come to Jerusalem and saw the cross and said, Okay, but not that. I won't go there. None of us would have judged him. None of us would have, would have thought any less of him. We all would have said, how humble is our God that he would spend 30 some odd years in our shoes. But we'd all be lost. See, Jesus was willing to go all the way, even, even to death on the cross because that's how much we mean to him. He chose the cross before the crown. And Paul goes on in that passage to say, someday every knee will bow And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And on that day when we see him high and lifted up and all the world bowing before him, we'll rejoice and we'll know he could have had that and we'd all still be lost. He could have had that the easy way. He could have claimed power and he deserved it. He chose to bring us in. Ask yourself the question. Do I want our side to win? Do I want our side to be in control? Do I want things to go my way? Or do I want to see more people at that celebration at the end of time? Do I want to see more people come to know Christ? Which one is my priority? Which one matters to me? Am I willing to lay aside some of that power? 
Am I willing to change the way I operate? Because he gave up the crown for the cross, we can say glory to his name. There to my heart was the blood applied.